Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission is to enhance physical and mental well-being and encourage community. And when I say community, what I mean is I believe that human beings are friendly tribal animals. And when we associate together in small enough numbers where we know each other by face or possibly by name, we're collaborative and cooperative. However, we must also recognize that there is a very small percentage of us, thankfully very small, who are motivated by what we call perverse incentives. And they're motivated by power, greed, and money. And it's our job to be vigilant about those folks so that we maintain democracy and our republic. Today, I have the great privilege of bringing to you a pioneer and a visionary in psychedelic medicine, Dr. Rick Strassman. Many of you already know Rick from his groundbreaking book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, which is sold, I believe, in 14 countries and approximately 250,000 copies and rising. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Rick. Well, thanks, Richard. Great to be on your show. You know, I was reading in your book, it was on page 144, that you were also influenced by Leo Zeff. And it turns out, at the exact same time in history in the 1980s that I was influenced by Leo Zeff because he was oh, really? a neighbor of, yeah, Leo was a neighbor of mine. He was about eight houses down the street and we, we got to know one another and I soon became his student. He became my mentor and I ingested various kinds of psychedelic medicines in my mouth, in my, in my rectum. I can't remember in my nose also. But I remember those were two administrations. And Leo did the most interesting thing. During the 1980s, I, was, I had founded a chemical dependence program called Cokeenders Alcohol and Drug Program. And we did a five-day residential to kick off everybody's program at Wilbur Hot Spring, a very intense program, 30 hours of group therapy, individual therapy. Uh, we did yoga, but I called it stretching. We did mind a meditation, but I called it mind clearing. We did nutrition training, but we called it learning about fuel, you know, disguise, disguising things to make them more palatable to chemically dependent people. And Leo says to me one day, I'd like to attend the five-day program. <laughs> yeah, great. So here was Cherubic. I mean, this, you know, remember him, he, he was a Cherubic person in his demeanor. And I said, Leo, you want to come to a, a, a chemical dependent residential? He said, yes, I've got something I want to deal with. I said, please come as my personal guest. So the first night of the program, we're all sitting in a circle, and it was my custom, after introductions, for each person to go to their room and bring every single drop of paraphernalia and drugs that they brought with them. Then I would ha have them go to the parking lot and clean out their cars and bring that to the room. And it was typically box boxes and boxes of stuff right. that were in the middle of the room. There was Leo sitting with bags upon bags of <laughs> Cheetos, chocolate knobs, different kinds of jelly beans. I mean, like he was a junk food king. And when the, when the, and I'm, he's sitting in a room with, with profoundly addicted heroin, 
cocaine, alcohol, garbage heads, taking all three. And they saw his collection. He was a hit overnight. It was really, really a great thing. Yeah. Whenever I attended meetings that Leo were at, you would always see him wondering where the food was. He'd be asking people, where's the food? Yeah, he just loved to eat. Leo Zeff, The Secret Chief, is the name of the book that was written about him. It's worth reading. You want to, you want to get to it. Yeah, you know, my experience with uh, Leo was rather limited. Um, I met him in the, in the mid-80s, 86, maybe 87. You know, so I arranged to do an Ibogaine uh, in a session with him, uh, which we did the next year. And then the, the picture trip, you know, that LSD and, you know, Harmaline uh, trip. You know, so those were the two experiences that I had supervised by him. And uh, they were momentous, especially the Ibogaine uh, one. What music did he play? Uh, you recall? You know, he just brought out his uh, you know, box of cassettes. I didn't, I didn't uh, look that carefully. I think he played some African music, you know, obviously for the for the I Begin session. You know, one of the striking things about the way that he would uh, you know, sit for my sessions is that he would just uh, read a paperback novel, like a you know, like a romance novel. He'd just be kind of you know, flipping, you know, uh, um, he'd be reading it, you know, but it was very, uh, you know, light, uh, you know, something that he could uh, distract himself from very easily if he needed uh, to pay attention. My most profound experience with him was when he gave me 500 micrograms of LSD, put up, put uh, eye shades on me and put headphones on me and had me lay down on the couch where I stayed for about eight, eight hours. He played Beethoven. I came away from that experience so focused on Beethoven and his genius that I really feel like I missed out on some areas of looking at myself because I was so overwhelmed by his genius at creating this music. And it get, afterwards, I thought, Rick, and, and this is something you talk about in your book, your latest book, I'm never going to use music again. I'm going to do silence because whatever music I listen to, I'm going to, I'm so suggestible under the influence of this medicine, the music itself is going to direct my journey. And I would rather either direct it myself with my intention or let whatever comes to me come, but to, to be so taken. So that was one experience. And the other was at another time on a large dose, and this was the most important experience, really. He came over to me, took off my eye shades, took off the headphones, and he took my hand and he looked into my eyes. And I had the sensation, real or not, that he was transmitting to me that which he had inside of him. And I, it was a, a glorious, glorious glorious moment, which to this moment still fills me when I, when I even think about it. I'm not, I'm not claiming that, that such transmissions do or do not take place. I'm not commenting on it. I'm just telling a story. Yeah. I mean, it felt that way, like a transmission. It felt that yeah, way. Yeah, like a transmission was occurring. Correct. Um, when Leo was holding your hand, did it feel like your hand was in a rock, like in a stone, like King Arthur's sword? His 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 hands were so it, 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 big and strong and warm. It felt 
like my hand was in a hand was in a was in not too hot but molten honey <laughs> yeah he's, golden honey yeah i mean he was quite a guy well you know during my again experience i was kind of nervous at a certain point and i said i you know need some reassurance uh so he laid on top of me face to face chest to chest belly to belly arm to arm leg to leg he just laid on me <laughs> it was the damnedest thing but you know i got grounded i was calmed down after a few minutes he got up and you know said are you all right and yeah so very intuitive guy very he went from the laying on of hands to the laying on of body <laughs> you know what's interesting is uh in the book of kings i think uh um there's a story in there about elisha elijah's disciple and he brings a child back from uh from death by lying on him face to face hands to hands arms to arms you know, so after mm -hmm. I discovered that narrative in the Book of Kings, I wondered if Leo may have learned it from from there. Uh, oh, that's a great observation. Okay, on to some big topics. I'll I'll mention out loud that I talked to you a little bit before we what, we went on air about talking about a few topics other than your book that we are definitely going to get to. So, listen, listeners, know that we're going to be talking about uh, we're going to be talking about Rick's book, Rick. What can you share us about your thoughts about the divide in the United States? Well, I do think about it, uh, and I do keep up with news. Even though I live in a remote part of the country, I mean, there's the Internet, and you can learn whatever you want to learn or keep in touch with, every, with, with whatever you want to keep in touch with. Um, well, I mean, I've got a couple of you know fundamental tenets when it comes to looking at history. Um, one is that there's evil in the world just as much as there's good. You know, so that's one of my, f uh, you know, foundational beliefs is, you know, that, you know, there is an existent evil uh, that uh, seeks destruction and chaos and pain and suffering. Uh, you know, just as, you know, that's just as real as good, uh, which on his loving uh, increases bounty. Uh, happiness, possessions, uh, peace. Um, you know, so I think, you know, that there's always a battle between good and evil. And uh, my Zen Buddhism teacher used to say, it's always 51 to 49, you know, good versus evil, which bespeaks the importance of every individual, uh, you know, doing everything you know, that they can uh, to promote the good. It, you can't be that passive or you, you can't be passive and expect things to work out. Um, you know, something else I consider too is the trajectory of history. Some people think it repeats that, you know, the history is circular. Um, and, uh, with reincarnation and, uh, those kinds of ideas, which I, I inherited from my study of Zen, uh, I was of you know that belief you know that you know history uh, is always repeating itself. There's multiple infinite incarnations, um, you know. But for the last twenty twenty five years or so, I've been studying the Jewish worldview, um, which uh, you know takes a linear point of view. You know that history had a beginning; it's, it's occurring now; it's uh, taking place now. I mean, at some point in the future, it will end. Uh, at least our understanding of history 
will end. And that's variously described as the messianic era or the world to come. And there are certain criteria which define it. Uh, and those criteria um, are biblical. Uh, and they've been kind of laid out you know, by the philosophers. So um, you know, there's also the understanding of, uh, I guess, you know, God being in charge of everything, even though it isn't, you know, God up there, you know, pulling strings. Um, you know, God put together uh, the system of cause and effect, which regulates um uh, which which regulates the laws of nature and ethical and moral laws. Yeah, so those laws are not random. Certain things occur as a result of certain you know, precedents. You know, things are the way now because of how they were before, and things in the future will be the way that you know, they are because of what's happening now. So those um, laws of nature... You know, social laws follow some kind of pattern. It's not random. Those uh, those laws aren't random. For example, if you're angry and you stub your toe, it, that discourages you from stubbing your toe. If you're good to your neighbor, chances are uh, you'll get you know good in return, and there'll be more peace. You know, so those laws of nature and laws of um, of society were created and are sustained at least from my point of view, my worldview, by dint of God. You know, God created and sustains those laws of nature and, and you know, social intercourse, which regulate our lives, which control our lives, which you know, determine history, what people decide, what people don't decide. You know, so I see the unfolding of history as the unfolding of God's plan, uh, and it's really hard to fathom. Uh, so... Um, I stay in, you know, like I stay, you know, tuned to, um, you know, to history in the making, current events. Um, but I don't get all that. We all, I mean, it's, uh, it kind of cuts both ways. You know, there, you know, there are times that I am quite despondent, quite disheartened. And other times I figure, well, it's God's plan and, you know, we don't really know what, you know, that is. You have to hope that it's for the best. I, I have some some friends that are, um, who are quite keen on unmasking, uh, you know, those who are um, you know, kind of manipulating current events, either uh, in the public eye or behind the scenes. And he's got a pretty well worked out and he gets quite upset about it um i think it keeps him from you know from relating to the rest of the world uh as in as you know facile and comfortable manner as he might you know, but beyond that it's um you think about these people as making decisions and being in positions that they are because of the laws of nature and the laws of cause and effect and how society works. Um, with respect to uh, you know democracy being at risk, um, I'm a real student of the Holocaust and concentration camps. Uh, you know the literature. Uh, you know what happened in Nazi Germany. You know how did the most refined society in Western Europe descend to that level of barbarity? Um, and um, you know most well, it seemed that most of Germany 
was not that interested in democracy, that they weren't that interested in it. They just wanted things to be better, and they didn't care uh, you know, how that was going to take place. You know, so Hitler you know, was a genius. He could blame. Um, he could incite anger. Uh, and he uh, you know, promised everything. So uh, the you know, consensus, at least from my understanding, is that uh, there wasn't as much interest in democracy as there was in, I guess, you know, their economy, you know, their welfare, you know, the market, you know, the commercial situation. Are we not fa- facing the same kind of situation here where we, we have pushed down the middle class and the lower class? Well, we have a situation where 50 percent of the United States, it is re- Ported that if fifty with fifty percent of the United States, if their refrigerator breaks, they don't have enough money for a refrigerator, and they're the sociologists tell us, and I learned learned this in my first course in social psychology in graduate school that if you push the population down economically far enough and long enough, they will rise up, and there'll be either a civil war or a revolution, and it seems as though. Trump is talking to those people, and he is certainly talking similar language to the kind of language that we heard from Hitler. Yeah, and most people would prefer believing him or somebody else uh, in lieu of free elections, you know, democratically elected officials. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, in a way, there needs to be some counterforce developing, uh, but. You know, like you're saying, it's the inequality. Um, you know, Philo of Alexandria, you know, back at the turn of the Common Era, I went through a Philo phase some years ago. And, and a point he makes repeatedly is that inequality leads to revolution. Yes, inequality leads to revolution. Well, you make a point in your book, the psychedelic handbook that we're going to pivot to now. You make a point of saying that these medicines can serve you don't use the word evil, but you point out that they could serve racists to bolster themselves as well as do good. Tell us your thoughts on how a medicine that facilitates empathy, such as MDMA, which we're going to be talking about, how can a medicine that facilitates empathy bolster racism, misogyny, white supremacy, hate, well, it makes you take a more, uh, I guess, expansive or more all-inclusive view of what psychedelics do. Um, you know, my feeling is that the best term for these substances is psychedelic, mind manifesting or mind disclosing. Um, and that's because they, they work on the mind. They work on what's already in the mind, more or less conscious, you know, but what's already in the mind. I don't think they in, uh, intrinsically are good or bad. I think they can be used for good if you have a good you know, psyche, as it were, and you know, for bad uh, if it's the other way around. The you know, case in point that I bring up ad nauseum is that of you know, Charles Manson and the way those folks used LSD. It cemented beliefs that were already there, not quite well formed, not quite as um, not quite as uh, solid as they became under the influence of LSD over months and months. But still, it um, 
it it depends on what you're empathic with. I mean, you you can empathize with Charles Manson, and you, you know that wouldn't be a good place. But still, if you loved him and he loved you, you know there'd be some uh, you know synergy, and uh, your beliefs would move in the same direction. Your ultimate your behaviors, uh, your actions would uh, you, you know move in a you know, certain direction, you know, consistent with your feelings and with your thoughts, uh, which are made even more compelling um, under the influence of um, psychedelics. Um, you know, one of the more speculative, obscure you know, chapters in the book, the psychedelic handbook, is is about you know, psychedelics being super placebos. They will help you manifest what you want to manifest or what you hope will manifest. You know, so uh, if you're feeling, you know, down and out, kicked around by society, um, you could take LSD with somebody like Charles Manson and become a serial killer. You could also, if you're depressed or you want your meditation to improve, you want to be a nicer person, if those ideas are pre-existing, then psychedelics will help you attain to them as well. Let's pivot now to you giving us a rel- relatively brief not too brief, but a relatively brief overview of your book. Tell us about the the, the, four, the four prominent psychedelics that you're mostly concerned with, LSD, psilocybin, DMT, and ayahuasca. And um, after you give us a little overview and mention those four, four then I'm going to ask you to, to just tell us a, a, a bit about the major benefits and liabilities of each of these four. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, even, you know, before, you know, the content of the book, maybe I could, you know, share, you know, my motivation for writing it uh, in the first place. Um, Thank you. Yeah. You know, it wasn't an easy book to write because I kind of had to put my money where my mouth was. You know, if I'm going to proclaim myself as an expert, I really uh, you know, needed, you know, to bone up on, you know, what's the latest uh, what's known, what's what's not known, what's the state of the art. Um, you know, I think ultimately I decided to write the book because of the need to provide a more uh, you know, balanced uh, educational you know, curriculum uh, with respect to the psychedelics. I think with you know the rush to judgment, saying how great they are and how you know minimally uh, you know, detrimental adverse effects are. You know, the commercialization, uh, they're being touted as panaceas. Um, you know, it just didn't seem right. I mean, you know, my work at UNM in Albuquerque giving DMT was the first human study or the first new human study in this country in a long, long time. It you know, basically opened, you know, the door to the American Renaissance and, you know, clinical research with with the psychedelics. You know, so I have I have felt some responsibility, you know, for better or, you know, for worse, you know, true or not. Uh, I feel some responsibility to keep the train on the rails. Um, and, you know, this is even in response, you know, to material coming out of academic centers, uh, you know, the you know, public, you know, lay uh, media. Um, it's, you know, coming from everywhere, you know, commercial media and and, you know, the institution. Uh, so I thought I would uh, present a sober, you know, level-headed approach, uh, the pros and cons. Um, and I think, you know, the unique 
character of the book is it's written by somebody who's been around, who knows what they're talking about. I've you know done their research. I've been interested studying psychedelics since I was 18 years old. Uh, you know, so it's a field that's you know near and you know dear to me, and uh, I n- know my way around it. And I think education, like you said earlier in the show, is key. You know, to optimizing benefits and to minimizing detriment. So with that as an introduction to the why you took on the book, let's get into, a, a, a as I said, relatively brief description of the four major psychedelic medicines and then something about their benefits and liabilities. Then we're going to get drilled down into specifics. Well, okay. Uh, so, yeah, I, uh, well, how do I divide it up? Well, the classical psychedelics, you know, that's one division. You know, so the classical compounds are pharmacologically uh, similar, and they include LSD, uh, psilocybin, DMT, and mescaline. Uh, They stimulate what's called the serotonin 2A receptor in parts of the brain where you would think those receptors are located uh, emotional centers, visual centers, cognitive centers, and so on. Um, so they're you know, mostly found in the world of nature other than LSD. Um, LSD is synthetic. Uh, you know, DMT is in a number of plants, including ayahuasca, uh, you know, psilocybin and mushrooms, and mescaline in the peyote cactus and the San Pedro cactus. Um, you know, so then I Oh, you know, so it also includes, you know, 5-methoxy-DMT, which is the toad. Even though, you know, pharmacologically and acute effects are slightly, you know, dissimilar, uh, they're still in the ballpark. And I also include ibogaine, uh, but, you know, that could be debatable because ibogaine is a very complex molecule. Um, uh, so then I talk about MDMA, uh, which, you know, pharmacologically is distinct from the classical compounds. Um, instead of stimulating you know, certain receptors, it stimulates the release of neurotransmitters onto those receptors, uh, specifically dopamine and serotonin. Um, and you, it, I think you could call it a you know, quasi-psychedelic. Uh, it isn't like a you know, classical compound with a lot of visual things and fragmentation of your sense of self. It's you know, more empathogenic, like you were saying, and tactogenic. Uh, the effects are more primarily emotional. You know, they can be slightly psychedelic, uh, but still the primary characteristic of those compounds is the uh, enhancement of empathy. And it can be empathy, uh, you know, for yourself um, as well as, um, you know, for other people. Um, And ketamine, uh, which is very popular now, there's ketamine clinics springing up everywhere to treat any number of things, you know, you know, the main indication is for treatment-resistant depression, but it's being used for you know, pretty much everything. Uh, you know, psychotherapeutic effects, post uh, PTSD and alcoholism, um, those kinds of things. Uh, you know, but for wellness, uh, for couples therapy, uh, smaller doses. Um, yeah, you know, so that's extremely popular. In a way, it's the uh, it's you know, psychedelics' first you know, foothold in. You know, medical use uh, at a widespread level. I, th- I think it may, you know, not turn out to be all that you know durable um, in terms of its utility out there. And, but I, I think it you know paved the way, you know, for other compounds to be used in the same you know, kind of setting, MDMA and psilocybin, for example. Uh, is there 
Is there hard research to back ket- ketamine, or is it because it is an off-use of, of something that happened to be legal and it's being used as a foot in the door? Well, it is quite helpful in cases of you know depression, which hasn't responded to traditional antidepressants. Yeah, that's been well established. And you know there are an increasing number of studies looking at using it for other conditions that classical psychedelics are helpful for, um, like alcoholism and PTSD. And I've heard stories uh, or you know cases of you know small doses of ketamine uh, you know being used as a lozenge, like you know sublingual, and you do couples therapy. Almost um, your inhibitions are lowered and you're more comfortable. You're sharing and expressing emotion. You know, ketamine can be you know, kind of habit forming, which is one of the drawbacks. Uh, I think you know that may ultimately uh, you know limit uh, uh, you know limit its use. Uh, and you know, one more you know, point about ketamine, you know, which is interesting, is it's being used in emergency rooms to treat you know, suicidal people. You give them ketamine, and they stop feeling suicidal. And you can send them home and you know, get them engaged in outpatient therapy. By the way, there's a, a clinic in Berkeley called the Sage Institute that was functioning during the uh, pandemic. And um, they had people come to the Institute, get the Lassange, and, th- and then go home. And um, then they gave the therapy over Zoom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, that's cost efficient. Yeah, if- I just wanted to... To make note of that, yeah. Well, if it works, I'm. Um, I mean, you would want to be supervised. In, you know, yeah. Um, ideally, you want supervision, and you want preparation, and I, you want follow up, and all that. So, you know, doing it with you know, Zoom, it's kind of hit or miss. It seems like. I was taught by Leo that having a guide was imperative whenever you took any psychedelic, other than uh, microdosing. Mm-hmm. He, he felt, you know, he felt very strongly that a guy, what's now being called a sitter, I'm not sure a sitter is the sa- same as a guide, by the way. And I think it's an interesting question, which which I'd like to ask you, which is, while we're on this topic, before we move on, to what extent is the training of the guide important? Because there's a major difference between taking one of these powerful medicines with a quote, sitter, and taking it with a licensed therapist. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I don't think I refer to guy. Well, you know, in uh, the book, I refer to them as uh, sitters, um, as opposed to referring uh, to them as guides. Yeah, I, I, I ought to have probably made that relationship more explicit. But yeah, if, if, if you're good at sitting, you're good at guiding. Uh, if you're good at sitting, you're able to respond to the needs of your client in in the moment in the most efficacious way. Um, you know, so, uh, so you need to be trained as a good sitter. You could just you know sit there, uh, bring a glass of water. You know, but most people who trip with just one straight person with them are you know doing it for uh, purposes of growth. You know, so you want your sitter to be able to help you in that process. You know, your point early on about music and Leo um, and Beethoven, it you know, got me thinking about um, you're you know, saying, you know, that um, if you don't have music, you know, then your own experience is acting as your guide. 
Um, yes. I think, though, you know, too, uh, you need a guide you know, to help you yes. when you get stuck or you help, need some help navigating. Right, both. Yeah, you know, so what kind of you know, training is required? What kind of training is necessary? Um, well, I think, although it's not established scientifically, but it just can't help but be the case. You know, that you have experience with the same compound, you know, with the same medication, with the same drug. I think it is useful in cases of informed consent. You can describe what the person is going to experience, um, you know, much better if you've had the experience yourself. You know, whether or not you'd be more empathic or more helpful, you know, during sessions, you would think that's the case. And I think if anybody ever studies it, it will, I, um, it will turn out to be the case. Um, but I think you also need to have worked on yourself. You need to be a good therapist. Uh, you need to have you know, been through therapy yourself. You know, like I, you know, went through a you know, four-year classical psychoanalysis, like up to five days a week on the couch, and I just spilled my gut. wow, and I just spilled my guts out for years, years and years. And oh years. my god! <laughs> how did how did you possibly afford it? Wow. Uh, well, he carried a debt. Yeah, that's the way I afforded it. And once it got over a certain amount, I started having to pay interest. So I tried keeping it under Boy. that amount. Um, you know, wow. so, I mean, obviously that's not the route for most people. But but still, if you've had therapy, if you know what it's like to be in a therapeutic relationship, both as a therapist and as a patient, I think that's helpful. It makes it easier to, you know, to relate to you know, somebody that's under the influence, um, you want to have a meditation practice or you know, some kind of spiritual practice, either meditative or oriented towards prayer. But at least it ought to allow you to accept the existence of spiritual worlds that we normally can't see but exert influence. Um, I think you know, being you know, uh, comfortable with the existence of that realm of reality and you know, having some vocabulary you know, some methods, um, you know, some advice along you know, theological or spiritual, um, you know, platforms can be quite helpful. You know, so if you can, well, and, you know, the whole issue of discipleship, um, I think when you're a you know, psychedelic you know, therapist, you are, you know, the object of a lot of, um, you, know, you know, lots of adoration, um, and you can take it on. Uh, and I think if you've you know, been in the position of either being a, a patient or you know, being a disciple, uh, I think it helps uh, you know, keep your modesty or y your um, your grandiosity in check. Um, yeah, uh, you know. So I think you know, to be a great you know, sitter, you need a lot of training. To be a good sitter, you need good training, and so on. You know, you tell an interesting story about Leo with regard to uh, the, uh, the 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 guide or the therapist, the sitter. I don't I don't really like guide or sitter. Sitter sounds like a babysitter, and a a, a guide sounds like someone who's going to lead you rather than let you go in your own direction and, and be, be there to support you. Um, but you talk about how Leo says, you know, if a difficult situation comes up and you're considering giving some uh, like a benzodiazepine <laughs> right, right. to, the, to, the, to the subject, better the, the guide takes the, the, the benzo and the Valium. And I, I laughed when I read that in your book and thought, 
Right, right on, Leo. Of course, because the last thing you want a person wants to see if they're having a difficult experience referred to as a quote, a bad trip, the last thing they want to see is that the guide is scared. What they want to see is the guide is looking at it like, oh, I know what to do about this. I've seen it a hundred times before. Let's get further into your darkness as a way of conquering it and mastering it. We have nothing to be afraid of. And Leo says the guide should take the benzo. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, there was, you know, one time we gave one of our uh, 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 psilocybin volunteers uh, um, some Valium. You know, I think I ought to have, uh, you know, taken uh, you know, Leo's advice, though, and, you know, taken it myself because it was you know, just so tense. Uh, well, yeah, and I, I think, you know, that's another reason, you know, to be experienced with your own psychedelic, you know, trips is, you know, to be able to negotiate with that person the confusing, dark, you know, depressing material that can come up. Um, well, so what do you think you should call or, you know, what do you think that, that you know, person you should be called? You know, maybe a psychedelic friend? I, I, ha I wish I could tell you, Rick, I haven't come up with something better, but I, I know those two words don't fit. I've mentioned it to Rick Doblin, to some other people. M maybe one of us will come up with something. Um, but uh, before we move on from DMT and talk a little bit about the benefits of psilocybin and, L and LSD, you administered back in the day in your seminal groundbreaking work in uh, 1990 or so, you administered 400 doses of DMT, as I, as I recall. Yeah, small, medium, and big doses. What, what, were there casualties? Well, you mean deaths or adverse effects? Any kind of casualty you want to share with us? Well, you know, thankfully, no one died. Although one guy developed okay. you know, very high blood pressure uh, and a stiff neck. So much higher blood pressure and much stiffer neck he would have been stroking. You know, so do, you, do you recall how high his blood pressure went? It was, uh, I mean, I've kind of blocked it out, but... Okay. If 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 I really struggle, I think it was two twenty over one forty. You know, something like oh, that. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, it was very, very. High. It was okay. really high, and it just you know shot up. Yeah. So, you know, that was a close call. Um, and the stiff neck, you know, that's from stretching of the blood vessels in the back of the neck that are going into your brain. That's what the pain is. Yeah. yeah. Did you all give him something like propranolol or something to take it down, or what? Did, how did you handle it? Well, I just took a deep breath and said, "It's going to be metabolized in three minutes. It's going to start coming down." Uh, if I give him, you know, some verapamil, which is a calcium channel blocker, which is the antihypertensive we had on hand, he might go into shock um, because one of our guys started going into shock. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah. I just decided to sit tight and see how it worked out. Okay. And thank God it. And he came down. Out. Yeah, yeah. You know, somebody uh, developed. You know, close to uh, you know shock. His blood pressure went down to sixty over forty, and his pulse went down to the forties. And it was because of being so astounded by what the DMT revealed to him. He just couldn't. Like he was just in shock. And uh -huh. He started going into shock. Uh huh. Um, uh huh. Let's see. A few people had you know, psychological adverse effects. One guy developed some panic attacks. Uh, you know, but he came back. Uh, you know, he was a hip, you know, he was a hypnotist and you know, worked on himself a lot. And he overcame you know the panic and resumed participation in the study. Did fine. Uh, two people had recurrences of 
um, you know, long ago depression. Uh, one responded to meds, one responded to you know, therapy, you know, both quite quickly. Um, one guy was anally raped by crocodiles uh, on his big DMT experience, was pinned to the bed, couldn't move, was absolutely just terrified. And, uh, you know, he dropped out of the study, you know, clearly. And, um, you know, we needed to support him for a few weeks. Uh, and he came through. All right. Moved to California, started working at a health food store in Santa Cruz, I think. Uh, stopped taking drugs, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. You know, so it was not all uh, a bowl of cherries. Uh, it's it, it was around, you know, 5%, you know, maybe 10% of the of our volunteers. You know, so, you know, one of the things I like to you know, talk about is to not overlook adverse effects. You know, that with increased accessibility, with, you know, the medicalization, there's going to be increased adverse effects just, you know, purely you know, by the numbers. Uh, so it's interesting or important to think about what might be the percentage of experiences that result in some kind of problem. Uh, that Indeed. Yeah. And it, if it's, you know, 5% in our group or, you know, 10% in a group of experienced, you know, psychedelic users... Um, I think in a group of unexperienced, you know, psychedelic users, you know, the general population, it may be more than 10%. I think this is extremely important data because I'm a person, if I ingest something, I want to know what the risks are and I want to know those, the risk in numbers. And w one of the things that I, I appreciate about your great book is that you're not c coming from a place of these are all wonderful panaceas and there's no trouble. <laughs> You're coming, excuse me, you're coming from a place of reporting what we what we know. And one of the things you say is that there is a risk, in your words, of coming unraveled. You specifically use those words, oh. coming unraveled. <laughs> well, you know, it's a figurative. If you think of yourself as you know, fairly well put together, I wouldn't say I mean, tightly wound, you know, but at least you're in a ball. <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, you can fragment, you can unravel. You're like a thread comes loose and the ball starts, you know, unwinding. Um, yeah, and it could be just a few inches. It could be like a lot of the ball of yarn. Uh, yeah, you can have, you know, transient anxiety. You can have anxiety that continues after you come down. Uh, you can have some depression or some sadness or some grief or, you know, self-derogation, you know, during the trip afterwards or a few days down the road. But those kinds of you know, problems can persist, can get worse. Um, you know, so that's you know the reason you know number one you know to advise people, and number two to intervene very quickly if there seems to be you know, some problems developing. So of the big four, let's say LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, DMT. I don't know if I'm leaving one out. Maybe there's a five. Which which has the biggest chance? With which do you have the biggest chance of unraveling? Well. I think with the classic compounds, the you know, chance is much um, you know, greater. Uh, you know, so that includes LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, you know, DMT, or ayahuasca. Um, you know, there was a German study came out a few months ago comparing LSD with psilocybin, you know, fully psychoactive doses of both uh, in a group of experienced you know, people. And there was no difference acutely. You know, the only difference was duration of action. You know, so mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's a move to kind of, 
you know, sanitize the adverse effect profile on a psilocybin. You know, it's a mushroom. It's natural. Grows in the earth. Um, it doesn't have the you know the baggage of LSD f- you know, from the '60s, but still, you know, the acute effects are indistinguishable. So I think anything. Well, I was talking with somebody working at a, a you know, pharmacy newspaper um, the other day, and she was wondering about you know the role of the pharmacist in dispensing psilocybin capsules. And I said, I hope that day never comes because imagine handing out you know, capsules full of LSD. Would you be as you know, sanguine about the whole idea? Um, so I, I think we would you know, benefit in you know, some ways by interchanging those names, LSD with you know, psilocybin. It's only a you know, question of you know, duration of action. You know, so you can experience the most fragmenting of your sense of self on the classical compounds, uh, they, you know, the effects last a while. You can really get yourself in, um, into, uh, you know, tailspin. You know, so I think with these, yeah, well, longer acting, shorter acting, you need somebody around, you know, to help you navigate. You know, specifically, you know, it's a bit interesting out there, you know, 5-methoxy-DMT, you know, the toad. Um, I think that there's going to be, you know, some... You know, push uh, to commercialize it. Uh, it's a tryptamine. It's not that well known. It can help you know, models of depression and you know, drug abuse in lower animals. You smoke it on a retreat, and your you know, depression improves. You know, but it causes a lot of flashbacks. I have heard more reports of flashbacks from you know, 5-methoxy-DMT than any other compound. Um, and I think it's because it obliterates uh, your sense of self, you know, ego dissolution, um, which may not be a good thing, especially, I don't know if you've seen those YouTube videos, uh, you know, people flopping around in, in streams and screaming and they can't remember anything. Uh, I'm not sure if that is intrinsically a you know, good thing. And, um, you know, there was an article that came out of the Netherlands, I think it was a you know, field report of, you know, 5-methoxy retreat. Uh, participants, and they both smoked it and used it intramuscularly. And I think those who smoked it, I, I, I mix up sometimes either those who smoked it or, you know, those who injected it in, intramuscularly experienced flashbacks, you know, 69% prevalence. You know, so it's one thing for a group of experienced, you know, psychonauts to have flashbacks. They can, you know, kind of work them through and understand them. You know, but, you know, but what if you're, you know, psychedelically naive you have a 5-methoxy experience. It's just the white light. You don't know where the hell you are and what happened. And you come down and you start to have you know, panic attacks the next couple of evenings. I, I don't think that's a good you know, drug to you know, kind of e- extend its accessibility. I mean, if you know, people uh, you know, want you know, to use it recreationally or otherwise uh, in kind of specialized you know, settings or you know, mindsets, but I, th- I think, you know, commercializing it, it would be a mistake. Uh, you know, there are other compounds out there that are probably just as effective. I view psychedelics as sacramental medicines, and I don't, to be used for inner space travel, and exactly what you describe in your book, to, to deal with healing, to deal with prevention, to deal with creativity, all those that, that are inner work. 
I don't pr- personally or professionally relate to a psychedelic that occurs and comes on in zero to 60 in a nanosecond, and then you're over it in a very sh- short period of time. Because when I've taken those, such as smoking DMT, and I'll tell you my experience, it was fascinating, but it happened so fast that I couldn't grab onto anything that I could then use in the real world. And so it becomes a trip at Coney Island. But I'm not taking psychedelics to go to Coney Island. I go to Coney Island for that. I want something where I can really learn something. And I was given DMT in 1967 when I was teaching at the University of Michigan. And I took a smoke into the universe, came back within five or 10 minutes. I said to the fellow, I'd like to try that again. He gave me another again, out into the universe. I came back again. I looked at him and I said, I'm not an addictive person. I'm quite sure of it, but I could get addicted to this stuff. This is an amazing experience. I want to try it again. He gave it to me again, out out into the universe. Out in the middle of the universe, I see a big red sign, literally a big red sign. It says, caution. I hear a voice coming from out of nowhere. In a deep voice, it says, anything that moves you so quickly is to be very deep, deeply respected. Use caution. I came back. He said, you want another? I said, I don't think I'm ever going to do this. I think I just got the word. I'm never going to do this again. But it was one, it was a great experience. But all I learned was to have deep respect and caution. But I didn't really grab something that I could use in everyday life. Well, so let me... well, yeah. Well, well, so let me suggest that you, you know, that you ought to have taken the fourth dose. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, that's great! That's great. Well, you know, uh, uh, your story of your know, three consecutive uh, you know, DMT experience it you know, mirrors a study you know that we did giving you know, DMT you know four times in a morning. Um, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the first was a big trip. The second was a big trip. The third trip was. Oh Jesus! I've had it. I don't want to do this again. You know that was routine. It, it was common, and you know people would look up and say, you know, um, you know, have anybody? Uh, well, well, well. So have any other volunteers? You know, quit. I'm at this point, and I would kind of tease them and say, not yet. And you know, the fourth dose, you know, was uniformly a breakthrough. You know, they kind of opened into whatever it was that had been constricting them, um, you know, previously. Still, though, you know, it's hard. Um, I mentioned at the end of my DMT book the possibility of a continuous infusion of DMT, you know, like for hours. It would be like an ayahuasca experience, but the you know, pure drug uh, where there wouldn't be the beta carboline monoamine oxidase inhibitors. You know, so I you know, put that idea out there in um, 2000, 2001. And a Japanese colleague and friend, Andrew Gallimore, or um, he's working in Japan, you know, he and I published a paper, you know, kind of, you know, sketching out the, you know, clinical you know, reasons for continuous infusion um, and, you know, some of the, you know, pharmacokinetic, uh, uh, you know, questions, you know, like how fast and how much and for how long. 
um, you know, because you could understand that space, you could orient yourself in it much more easily if you could stay an hour there or a half hour, a few hours. And, uh, you know, yes. therapeutically, uh, you can work on stuff in at one level, you can turn it down and interact with your therapist uh, at the lower level. And then you could just, you know, blast yourself out if that's what was called for at the time. And you could stay sober for five minutes, a half hour, you know, so... Um, I, I think a more prolonged exposure, to, you know, to DMT, you know, would end up you know, being more beneficial. Yeah, and could you keep the doses low enough so there would not you would be careful about cardio cardiovascular effects? Yeah, yeah, you know, for sure, you would screen people and you and you would monitor them. Um, yeah, you know, I'm consulting with a group at UCLA, you know, the VA in in you know West LA. And you know, they're interested in uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder study using DMT in that way, um, uh, you know, giving it you know, four times in the course of a morning. I think you know the um, you know the intervals would be longer and would probably be flexible, uh, but still uh, the specifics are yet to be worked out. You know, but the overall you know, plan seems to be uh, you know to use that model and. You know, psychotherapeutic slash you know, psychedelic kind of setting. In your book, you say the hallmark of any full psychedelic experience is the sense that it is, and I quote, more more real than real. Talk to us about more r- real than real. Well, it's kind of like pornography. Uh, you know, like the Supreme Court justice joked one day, he couldn't define pornography, but he knew it when he saw it. You know, so I, right, I yeah, I, I think it's, you know, the same thing. Uh, you know, it isn't like exactly the you know, same thing, but still, um, you know, it's a feeling, uh, it's a conviction, uh, it's an empirical gestalt, uh, you know, realization or a more knowledge that what you're witnessing, apprehending, what you're immersed within is real. Um, it isn't, exp- you know, it isn't deduced. It isn't like you, you know, think about it and ex- and perform experiments to determine if it's real or not. It's a feeling uh, that what you're in is real. You know, so that you know, kind of you know begs the question uh, about you know what's real. Is it just what you you know feel is real, or is it where you are most of the time, um, or you know what exactly? You know, which is um, one of the mind-boggling uh, implications of the presence of endogenous you know, DMT in the mammalian brain. Um, the concentrations of DMT in the mammalian brain are comparable, you know, to those of serotonin and of norepinephrine you know, and dopamine, which starts to build a case for there being a DMT neurotransmitter system. And uh, if there were, that would mean that the brain's producing a compound that you know, psychedelics, uh, or uh, you know, the brain's producing a compound that stimulates the same part of the brain that psychedelics do. You know, so then you start to have to wonder, well, is this all just a you know, psychedelic, you know, narrowly defined window uh, that we're all kind of dealing with? And, you know, when you really trip, like you increase, you know, levels of DMT or LSD in your brain, is, you know, that, uh, is, you know, that revealing, you know, what is underneath or, you know, more real than this, you know, narrow window that we exist in mostly. 
How does the psychedelic experience of, of, of the experience being realer than real, how does that relate to the psychedelic near-death experience? Um, yeah, well, the, you know, the concentrations of DMT increase in visual cortex in the dying animal. You know, that study uh, or those you know, data were reported in the same paper that you know, talked about you know, levels of DMT in the brain being high in the first place. You know, so to the extent that the near-death state and the DMT experience resemble each other, you know, the out-of-body sense, the feeling of it being more real than real, um, you know, the visual characteristics, you know, to the extent that, you know, those two experiences overlap, it makes sense to propose a, a role for naturally occurring DMT in, you know, the near-death state. And those... Uh, recent data indicating high levels of DMT increasing in visual cortex and that in uh, you know the dying animal supports a you know a possible role for naturally occurring DMT in you know the near death state it would seem like realer than real and you're having a death exper- experience or an ego dissolution experience which you just Scribe, they can feel like you're really dying or that your ego is really dissolving. And that sort of underlines one of your messages in the book, which is to educate yourself about this before you take psychedelic, so that when it happens, you realize you're dealing with an effect of the medicine. You're not really dying and you're not really unra- unraveling and your ego isn't really dissolving. But it, but subjectively, it feels that That's way. how it feels, right, right. Yeah, and I think you know that we interact with this you know, so-called reality. You know um, that <clears throat> you know we continue to engage with it because it feels real, and that's really all we, you know. That's really all that you know, we can know. Um, you, you can you know, study. I, I, I'm sorry. We, you know, you can do experiments. Uh, <clears throat> uh, when I was writing <clears throat> uh, the spirit molecule. Um, I had a brief correspondence um, with uh, you know genius you know, cosmologist at, um, at Oxford, you know David Deutsch, and I was uh, you know going into <clears throat> you know some speculation about you know DMT allowing us to perceive into dark matter or, or you know, parallel universes, and I asked you know David Deutsch about the you know, parallel universe uh, you know, possibility. And and he said you really wouldn't be able to tell in the moment. You could only deduce, you know, working backwards, if you're living in a parallel universe or not. Which you know, seemed like you know a chicken and the egg, snake swallowing its tail sort of thing. So I figured there wasn't much utility in you know, pursuing that train of thought much much further. Rick, I, I have a theory about what's re- referred to as marijuana paranoia that I, I want to share with, share with you. In our culture, when we have feelings inside, part- particularly uncomfortable ones, we're pretty much trained to look outside to see what's causing it. What's, what's around me that's, make, that's making me feel bad? Or what people? Instead of being trained to look in, inside at how we are creating that emotional state. So when people smoke marijuana, some 
have an increased heart rate and an increased blood in blood pressure. When that occurs, some people are uncomfortable. They can feel the increased heart rate. They can feel the increase in blood pressure. And they get uncomfortable and they start looking around for what the co- cause is. Am I in danger? Is the roof caving in? Is somebody looking in the window? Is a car following us? What's co- causing me to feel uncomfortable inside? Right. That looking outside instead of looking inside does not allow them to modulate those feelings as they could with breathing, which you point out, gratefully so, in your book. There's not much you miss in that book, by the way. It's a, such a great book. You cover so oh, much. thank you. Instead of doing the, the, the breathing, which would then bring their blood pressure down and their heart rate down, they're looking around about what's following me, what's out there, what's in there, did I leave something burning in the oven, etc. all those things. What I'm le- leading up to is you have mentioned quite a few times in your book how psych- certain psychedelics increase heart rate and blood pressure. And I'm wondering to what extent those physiological I- increases are contributing to what we call bad trips or something just short of ba- bad trip, like uncomfortable trip. All uh, right, a lot of anxiety. Um, well, you know, um, with the classical compounds, if they're taken orally, uh, you know, generally, you know, they don't raise blood pressure and heart rate all that much. Uh, I think it's more of a you know, psychological reaction, which then makes their heart rate go up and their blood pressure go up, and it's a you know vicious you know feedback loop. Um, when you smoke your know, DMT, obviously things increase uh, just you know by, uh, you know pharmacologically, you know, but the uh, you know, cardiovascular effects, you know, pharmacologically of, let's say, LSD are, you know, they aren't especially profound. I th- think it, you know, kind of, you know, begins, you know, with anxiety. Um, yeah, well, you know, you know, first of all, those people are no fun to smoke pot with if they have marijuana you know, paranoia. <laughs> yeah, you know, they you know, kind of curl up in a ball. You know, it, well, you know, one of the underlying or recurrent, you know, themes in that kind of condition is this painful self-awareness. Uh, they think that, you know, people are putting them down, that they're mocking them, uh, that they're you know, making fun of them. You know, that you know, seems, you know, like the most common features uh, of that kind of marijuana paranoia thing. Um, it isn't always the case that that's going on with, you know, classical psychedelics. Um, well, yeah, you uh, just... You know, need to con- you need to communicate with those people if you can, and if you can't, just you know, put them in a you know quiet, you know, dimly lit space, sit next to them if need be, just you know, help calm them down. You know, one person who I'm actually was going you know through that, I used the Leo Zeff Elijah method of you know laying on top of them, face to face, hand to hand, leg to leg, and. It was perfect. I mean, they came down like within a minute or two. So, uh, you know, obviously you need to make sure everything's cool because, you know, that could be misinterpreted, obviously, you know, sexually. Uh, yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so you, what about, excuse me. Yeah. Well, well, the guidelines, you know, the longest chapter in the book is about how to trip. And uh, I spent you know, some time discussing, you know, guidelines between you if you're by yourself, you know, with you or, you know, between you and the other people in uh, your space, if you're not, you know, tripping alone, you know, guidelines need to be 
explicit. Uh, you know, no always means no. It never means yes. Uh, yes can become no. You know, yes isn't always yes. You know, so um, if you're going to be, you know, laying on just someone, you know, when they're really anxious, <laughs> you might want to, well, I, I mean, you're practically speaking, if you're smoking pot with a friend and they blow it like that, I mean, you don't have time to give them an informed consent. Uh, you know, but still, you know, there'd be an understanding and you would be sensitive to nuances that you weren't imposing on them, those kinds of matters. Of the of the four biggies, L- LSD, psilocybin, ayahuasca, and MDMA, you talk the most about the cardiovascular effects on MDMA. You seem most concerned about that. You seem most concerned about MDMA as a medicine in terms of potential liabilities. Well, yeah. I, I I mean, I kind of swimming against the tide in that respect, you know, but you know, the whole question of neurotoxicity, it, it, you know, it you know, can increase your blood pressure and your heart rate. And if you've got you know, problems with your heart, you ought to be you know, super careful or, or completely avoid it or work with your, with your cardiologist, you know, but the more, you know, troubling, uh, aspects of especially repeated MDMA use is the question of neurotoxicity. It you know, seems that the more MDMA you take, the more neurotoxicity there is. Uh, you know, so I, I think it's prudent, you know, to limit your exposure. You know, it's the risk-benefit analysis as well. Like, for example, in the case of you know, treatment-resistant you know, PTSD, if you've tried everything under the sun and you still are, you know, really ill, you know, MDMA is worth it. Um, but if you just want to have fun uh, and, you, and you want to take MDMA like every week or every month or, you know, something for years on end, that you know, probably is more, uh, you know, benefit than risk. Uh, and, and I'm sorry, that's, you know, more risk than benefit. Um, you know, but in- <laughs> Well, it, it, interesting you say that because I was just going to share with you <laughs> that I know several couples who have taken MDMA three or four times a month, almost every weekend for o- over five years. Wow. And uh, one of them was, I, I wrote about in my in my book, Psychedelic Medicine, Dr. Alan Ajaya, he talked openly about it. Also taken hundreds of LSD trips. Mm-hmm. But I've, in, I've interviewed many people who have taken hundreds and hundreds of LSD tr- trips and seem no worse for the wear. I, I have a few examples of people taking hundreds of MDMA without problems. But, I, I, you know, I, the problem people don't necessarily want to come and talk to me or share it with me. Yeah. And those you know, problems in a mostly healthy person might just come up on I, 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 uh, brain scans or, you know, neuropsychological testing. And, you, you know, they may not be, uh, and, you know, they may not be, uh, you know, clinically relevant. Um, you, you know, the classical compounds are, you know, non-neurotoxic, uh, LSD, psilocybin, uh, you know, DMT, and you know, mescaline. Uh, you know, there's no neurotoxicity. Um, you know, so it's always, you know, seemed to me like if you want an MDMA experience, just take a small amount of psilocybin. You know, that's not exactly true, but I think it's, you know, true enough. You can increase your, your empathy, especially if it's, you know, taken in that kind of setting. Um, you know, with a medium dose of a classic compound. Maybe three grams of dry? You know, it would you know, just depend on the mushrooms. Yeah. Talk to us about a phenomenon you, you describe in your book called stimulated imagination that comes from psychedelics. 
Yeah, well, that's you know, kind of getting in the weeds, but but still, I do include that uh, in the book. Uh, it's it caught my attention. It's, it seemed like a fascinating concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's an old idea. It you know harkens back to Aristotle, Aristotle's metaphysics, uh, which you know divides the mind into what's called an imaginative uh, faculty and a rational faculty, or the, um, or the intellect. Um, you know, so the intellect, uh, you know, deals you know, with ideas, concepts, uh, you know, notions, you know, non-measurable things, you know, non-observable uh, with, you know, sensation kinds of things. And the imagination is the arena of everything else. You know, so it is an imagination as in imaginary or make-believe. It's, imag- it's the imagination as in non, uh, non-rational. You know, so if you you know think of the intellect as you know the location of ideas and thoughts, you know knowledge, information, and you think of the imagination um, as lo- um, as the location of uh, you know, perception, you know, uh, you know visual and auditory, tactile, your know, feelings, uh, your emotions, um, your body sensations, your body awareness, uh, you know those kinds of things. You know those are are things which are you're kind of held in the imaginative realm, the imaginative uh, you know, faculty, and I mean everything else, uh, abstract intellections. Uh, you know, those reside in you know the intellect or, um, or the rational faculty. Um, you know, so I think that you know, psychedelics you know, primarily stimulate the imagination uh, because you know I mean just look at the. You know the way that the term psychedelic was you know, co-opted you know, back in the '60s and you know, the '70s as representing some you know, kind of aesthetic, um, as opposed to a new philosophy. You know, the philosophies were borrowed from the New Age or from the East or from certain Christian or uh, uh, you know Jewish um, streams. You, you know, but the aesthetic was was new and you know was emphasized. And it became kind of perverted into this, you know, garish, you know, caricature, you know, visually, auditorially, um, you know. But I think, you know, that's a reflection of you know psychedelics, uh, you know, stimulating new combinations of ingredients in the imagination. You know, so to, you know, make your psychedelic experience more than simply an aesthetic one, emotional and perceptual and somatic, uh, you can extract information from the contents of the imagination. And the way of extracting information from the contents of the imagination is through a well-developed intellect, through study, contemplation, um, you know, tradition, practicing virtue and piety. You know, make yourself a, a good person with your mind full of good thoughts, uh, and you'll be able to get more out of the uh, uh, the visions, you know, so to speak, uh, you know, then you know, would otherwise be the case. Otherwise, it would be uh, mostly um, a visual, oh wow, exotic experience. You know, but if you can get something out of it, which you can articulate in words, write down, you know, share with other people, uh, I think you're able to maybe make. You know, more of those experiences. When you say the better develop the intellect, the more one can extract from psychedelics, does that mean in some way that you advocate for us to wait till a certain period of life 
or a certain age until we, we take these medicines? Um, I think in the in in you know, the ideal you know world, well, you know, kind of like Island, you know, by Huxley, uh, you, you take one you know, substance at a certain age, then another one at a certain age, you know, then an, you know, then a, and you know, then another one at a certain age. <clears throat> Um, I think, you know, that's a reflection of one's intellectual development, um, your studies, your, your education. You know, so the more educated you are, the more able you're able to understand what you're seeing, to you know, make some sense of it, as opposed to just, you know, simply, you know, beholding it. You know, there is you know, value in, you know, in you know, beholding things which you've never beheld before. But, um, you know, I think... I think if you want to diffuse, you know, you know, kind of spread out, optimize those experiences, if you can, you know, share them verbally, understand them and, and articulate them you know, verbally, you know, so your intellectual development, you know, continues, um, you know, PJ, you know, language development and, you know, moral development and, you know, whatnot, you know, the age of your know, moral responsibility for your actions, um, you know, that takes time, you know, so if, you know, if, you know, there ever were to be a, a you know, psychedelic society or, you know, one in which, you know, psychedelics, you know, played a role, you know, like, you know, from A to Z, uh, then you could, you know, formulate certain, you know, developmental stages that would be best, uh, you know, suited for one drug or the other. Given how suggestible some of us are when we take psychedelics and given the known effect of trance state on people. How concerned are you about psychedelic tourism, where people are flocking to South America to take psychedelics in the ju in the jungle with quote shaman unquote? Well, you know, I think it's you know buyer beware. Uh, you know, do your research. Um, the things I've been hearing with respect to those ayahuasca retreats or uh, San Pedro retreats, um, you know, toad retreats is, is integration. Uh, they you know, tend to give you a lot of medicine in a short period of time. And you can understand it in the jungle with, you know, shamans, you know, doing their thing and then explaining things using their worldview. And you're suggestible. You believe it. It makes you know, sense. It's making inroads into your psyche in, in, um, in a way that otherwise wouldn't be the case. But, you know, well, <clears throat> um, once you get home, uh, and it's, I, I think it can be hard to integrate the shamanic worldview, you know, with most people's everyday, uh, you know, everyday lives. Salvia divinorum is legal in the United States, but it's not getting much action as a psychotherapeutic medicine. Are we missing out there? Is there potential? <laughs> Should we be looking at it? Mm. Talk to us about uh, yeah. Talk to us about sa Salvia. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I, it's, I, I think I relate to I relate to her as Sylvia. By the way, yeah, yeah. I always think of this. Yeah, that's the name of my espresso maker. It's you know called Sylvia. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, Salvia. Uh, yeah, it you know, comes. Well, it's a mint. It is in the mint you know, family. Um, you know, the active ingredient is um, <clears throat> is called salvinorna. Um, and it's quite potent. It's almost as potent as LSD. It's active in the, you know, 200 microgram range. Uh, you know, 250 is a pretty full dose um, of salvia divinorum or of, uh, you know, salvinorin A. 
Um, you know, most people I've spoken to, uh, and you know, myself, it was a very dysphoric experience. It was very unpleasant. Um, and you know, one of the, uh, you know, frequent explanations, uh, you know, for the unpleasantness is the you know, physical effects. It you know, feels as if you're dissolving, uh, kind of turning into sand or stretching out. You know, my experience, um, I smoked it like a long time ago when it was, you know, just discovered you could smoke the pure drug. Uh, you know, Daniel Siebert was, you know, was, you know, sending it to his friends and, uh, I got some and I way overdosed and, uh, you know, the roof or you know, the ceiling opened up in you know, my bedroom. I was you know, lying on the bed. You know, my wife at the time had, you know, gave it to me. And, and this man, this you know, 40-foot man wearing a bowler cap and a brown suit looked down at me and he said, it's time to go now. And he started to stretch my skin from my arm onto his pant leg. And I was being you know, pulled along by this guy, you know, walking across the meadow, you know, in front of our house. And it was like, man, I don't really want to go there. And a lot of other people just hate Salvinorin, but still, uh, you know, there are you know, people that it gets along with. Um, you know, there was a study at Hopkins and a study at Harvard. You know, uh, you know, where they recruited you know people who takes you know Salvinorin and you know they like it and they studied them and drew blood and gave questionnaires and things. Um, you know, so there is, well, it's, it's a unique, you know, drug, you know, pharmacologically, it stimulates the kappa opioid receptor as opposed to the serotonin one. And, you know, so it, it could be useful, you know, theoretically in opioid abuse or withdrawal, you know, kind of like Ibogaine is active at the kappa site too. Um, or, uh, you know, pain, uh, you know, kappa sites are, uh, in, uh, are important, um, in pain perception. You know, but I think as an antidepressant or anti-anxiety agent, I think it's going to be pretty niche uh, because of the adverse effects. You spend a great deal of time in your book, and thankfully so, talking about preparation for the psychedelic experience. And you point out how Leo Zeff, our secret chief, said that the psychedelic experience begins when you start thinking about taking the psychedelic. And I thought that was a great point when you said it that way, because that really is the beginning. And you go on to talk about the importance of, of reading, of, uh, of studying, uh, of psychology, and also religion, religion. But you then point out with, that people should be careful to avoid cults, cults. And what popped into my mind was, well, what are the major religions other than cults that made good, aren't they, aren't they this cult that, that that have the biggest number of people and they're successful? Um, well, you're speaking, I think, you know, mostly about organized religion, uh, and well, yes, and those are the ones you refer to to when you say talk to those people, you know, as part of your preparation. If you're affiliated, yeah, you're not pushing. Yeah, if if you're, yeah, yeah, if if you're, you know, drawn to discussing, you know, with a cleric, right? Well, I may not have made the point as clearly as I you know, could have in the book. Is, um, you know, I distinguish, you know, between the uh. You know the institution which has you know grown around uh, you know the religion uh, you know the belief system uh, the experiences 
like you know, for example, I am a great student of the Hebrew Bible. I mean, I just I you know read it every day. It you know converted me from Zen to being Jewish again. Um, you know, but uh, um, I don't you know, belong you know to any organized you know Jewish um you know, community. You know, um, you know, no synagogue. I don't have a rabbi. I've got you know mentors. You know, uh, you know who are rabbis. You know, but I. Uh, have approached the tradition, uh, you know, solely through scripture, you know, kind of like Luther, you know, solely scripture, um, as opposed to the, you know, the clerics, uh, you know, telling me what to do and what to donate to and, you know, who to do this with and who not to do that with. Yeah, yeah, the clerics are the, you know, the, you, know uh, you know, clerics are a menace. Uh, but still, it's like what we were discussing earlier on, uh, in the program is that most people would rather be told what to do, you know, rather than investigate themselves. And for most people, it, um, it's easier uh, to, you know, be under uh, the you know, guidance or the regulation or the strictures of, of a clerical establishment. Um, it's easier, you know, than studying you know, biblical Hebrew and the commentators and the Midrash and all that. I mean, that takes a lot of work, you know, so I think uh, it's not something that, uh, is you know for everyone, uh, you know when I was you know talking about you know speaking with your you know cleric, uh, I, I was more you know thinking about you know speak to your pastor, uh, you know somebody that, you know that can you know d- discuss your concerns at a you know theological level, but you know just discuss them as opposed you know to um, imposing them or constraining them in any way. Uh huh. You um, you talk about the importance of intention. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I want to quote that you raised three important questions for, for for people to ask themselves with regard to their intention in terms of taking psychedelics. You say, ask yourself, why am I taking it? You say, ask yourself, why do what do I hope to gain and what do I hope to avoid? These are three great questions important questions to ask. Why am I taking it? What do I hope to gain? What do I hope to avoid? Now, we're going to leave, that's intention, before the fact. We're going to leave integration, which is after the fact, for last. But but just short of that, we're going to talk a little bit about something that's taking the country by storm, which is microdosing. Microdosing. So talk to us about, yeah, talk to us about microdosing, with these various psychedelic medicines. By the by, the way, you must note that I keep referring to these substances as medicines. Uh-huh. There's a reason for that. In 1985, when I met Rick Doblin at Esalen at a at a conference, I said, "Rick, we have to stop talking about marijuana as a drug. We have to talk about marijuana as a medicine. The only way we're going to get a foot in the door towards legalization." is through medical marijuana first, then recreation, but it has to be a medicine first. And every time you refer to it as a drug, it brings up in people's minds drugs and druggies and hippies and illegal and criminals. And (gasps) drugs have bad connotations, bad baggage. So I'm taking the same tack with the psychedelics, Uh and I'm doing my best to refer to them as, as medicines. At and 
you talk about microdosing as a medicine. Give us a little summer, summary on microdosing with LSD with uh, with psilocybin. Okay. Well, you raised some stuff in there. There's like three things I want to address that, that, Great. that you raised. Uh, well, you must have been at that you know, meeting at Esalen when I was there. In 1985, you know, Rick Doblin called me in in like December '84. You know, my article on adverse effects of psychedelics, you know, came out in October '84. It's my first you know major psychedelic writing, and he tracked me down. I was at UNM. I'd just been there a month or two, or I'm, maybe I just arrived. And uh, he says, "I'm Rick Doblin. I'm organizing a meeting at Esalen next year. You want to come?" And I said, "Sure." You know, so I attended that meeting. Um, we, I, I had a feel, I had a feeling we met at that meeting, but you know, so many years went by, I couldn't put the face with the face. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you were telling Rick to stop calling them, you know, drugs. Even back then I was telling Rick, you know, get your PhD in clinical psychology. So <laughs> we both yeah. gave him advice that he has, you know, followed more or less, uh, you know. He has. He's <laughs> followed both of them, uh, definitely. Yeah. Um, you, you might recall he also said he was going to give MDMA to every member of Congress. Right. But, you know, but, you know speaking of, you know, terminology, um, <clears throat> you know, last month when uh, I was on, uh, you know, Joe Rogan's podcast, I – you know, brought up the word God. Uh, you know, I figured every chance I get. <laughs> and so, you know, Joe said, oh, you know, you can call it that. And he started saying, you know, you shouldn't call it God. And I said, well, you know, well, I th- I th- think he uh, you know, made the you know, commonly, <clears throat> you know, made point, you know, which is, you know, God has been abused, you know, kind of used to justify all kinds of horrible things. Um and I said to him, well, you know, look at the word, um, you know, love. I mean, it's been applied to the worst possible behaviors as well. You know, so we need to, you know, uh, <clears throat> you, know um, you know, to reclaim the word love just as much as we need to reclaim the word God. So, you know, then we got off on, you know, to other topics. You, you know, but I think it is, you know, I, I think, you know, drugs are drugs. They're, you know, pharmacological agents that affect biological systems. Um you know, so I, it, it's, you know, more generic. It's, you know, like psychedelic. Um, it encompasses a whole, you know, range of my phenomena. You know, but still, I completely understand you're using the word medicine. I'm, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, you're talking about, you know, microdosing. Uh, you know, Jim Fadiman, you know, was a mentor of mine at Stanford. I met him in, you know, 72. Uh, like I was be- between my junior and your know, senior year at Stanford. And I was totally like, what am I going to do with my life? I want to study psychedelics, but the Controlled Substances Act was passed, and I'm not interested in becoming a doctor and, you know, just, you know all those kinds of things. Um, you know, so I went to student health uh, and spoke to their psychiatrist there, and I said, you know, this is what I'm concerned about. And he said, you should meet Jim Fadiman. You know, he's working in the engineering corner, you know, someplace uh, in, in, uh, on campus. You know, so um, I called Jim and, you know, you know, and, uh, you know, we arranged to meet. Um, and, you know, one of the things that he told me was look into the pineal gland. You know, like I was, you know, 20 years old, I hadn't, you know, I'd never heard of the pineal gland. You know, so, you know, Jim introduced me to the pineal gland and all of the, you know, various, uh, you know, uh, you know, things which, 
I um, you know grew out of you know my study of the pineal. Uh, you, you know, so you know, Jim. Oh well, um, so you know, Jim was at a meeting uh, with me and Ralph Metzner and the Grays and a couple other people who you know, you know may not want to be uh, mentioned or not. Um, and you know, it was you know bicycle day in San Francisco, maybe ten years ago, maybe twelve years ago, um, and we were convening to start talking about a psychedelic church, you know, like an above board psychedelic church, you know, get all the paperwork and give, uh, you know, psychedelics to people who want to, you know, trip in a you know, sacred, holy manner. And, you know, Ralph was there, you know, Ralph Metzger, and he said, no, no, keep it underground, keep it underground. Once you start regulating it, it's a mess. Um, and so, you know, we were kind of saying, oh, you, you can do it. It's just paperwork and increased accessibility and stuff. You know, but in retrospect, I think, you know, Ralph had a point. Um, so, yeah, so Jim was there too. And it, it was, you know, long before his microdosing work. So, gosh, it may have been even longer ago. And, you know, Jim said, you know, microdosing. Microdosing is the way to start to spread into the mainstream you know, to make them acceptable, to make more people, you know, to help encourage, you know, people to use them um, and start to, uh, you know, and start to learn what they can do. You know, so I've known, you know, Jim a long time and we've kind of crossed, you know, paths over the years. And, you know, Jim also, in, you know, was the one to introduce me, you know, to Shasta Abbey and, you know, Kenneth Roshi, you know, who, you know, was my Zen community, you know, for over 20 years. You know, so Jim was, uh -huh. you know, quite helpful over, like, it, you know, like I, you know, like I you know, see him every 15 years and he'd say, you know, do this. So it's like, oh, yeah, great. And, <laughs> you know, the impact was, uh, it continues to reverberate. You know, but getting back to microdosing, yeah, it's it's all the craze. Um, I, I, th I think it depends on what your, you know, what your microdoses are. Uh, you can... Conveniently, you know, more or less define them as, you know, tiny, uh, small, or I, I forget, you know, what I say, but, you know, tiny, you know, very small and small. You know, tiny uh, would be you have, you know, no acute effect at all. It's like you took a sugar pill. You know, there's no subjective experience which occurs after you take it. You know, so, you know, pharmacologically, if you took that kind of dose, like every day, maybe every week, there still would be antidepressant, uh, uh, antidepressant-like effects. You know, um, you know, there was a, a few studies. You know, one in you know, particular in the early days, you're giving a small amount of LSD every day as an antidepressant. You know, to inpatient, you know, depressed people. Um, and within a few days, you know, there were no more psychedelic effects. It was a small dose anyway, or you know, subjective effects. Um, you know. Um, you know, patients uh, stopped experiencing any acute subjective effects. You know, but over time, in the same kind of uh, you know, time course as would occur with antidepressants, you know, their depression improved. You know, so I think you can effect an antidepressant effect without any subjective effects. Uh, it wouldn't be as strong, mm -hmm. perhaps, as you know, something else, or with a bigger dose of therapy. You know, but if you're just you know, taking sure. a Super small dose with absolutely no effects. It would be acting like an antidepressant. Uh, the, you know the sure. you know, the neurogenesis, the neuroplasticity. You know, very small doses would be a bit like 
caffeine. You'd be a bit more alert, yeah. stimulated, um, you know, more energy. And if you were you know, taking a, a very small dose with some, you know, uh, with you know, some mild subjective effects on a daily yeah, a basis J &D. or a weekly basis, you would also feel antidepressant effects. Um, small doses are ones which, you know, give you a hint of what's to come if you increase, you know, the dose. You know, things might be a little sparkly in the room, whatnot. You, um, you, you know, but those are, uh, uh, you know, my clinical impressions. Uh, you know, the data out there, um, at least, you know, laboratory data are very rudimentary. Uh, they're, you know, they're, you know, mostly using between, you know, the very small and the small doses. You know, so there is an acute subjective effect. You know, people yeah. you know, feel you know, something. You know, but it isn't like a mood elevating effect. It's it's an energy effect. You know, they're determining these kinds of descriptions. You know, based on rating scales. You know, more than anything else. But based on based on your knowledge of this of the pharmacology, if you take a very small sub sensate dose, say le less than ten micrograms of LSD. Uh -huh. Is there enough effect on the neurotransmitters to, to warrant then taking two days off before your next administration, as Jim and some others are re recommending? Or might you just as well take it every day because you, you're, the small dose is not depleting your, your, your serotonin, not having an effect on your dopamine? Right, right. Um, well, you know, if you were... Uh, you know, gauging your frequency of dosing, you know, purely on the neurogenesis and uh, and you know neuroplasticity effects. In you know the case of uh, you know psilocybin, uh, once a month, you know, would be adequate. You know, the neuroplastic you know, changes persist for a month in uh, you know laboratory animals after a a, a single dose of psilocybin. Um, you know, if you were interested in an antidepressant effect, uh, you, th you know, theoretically could, uh, you know, take it every day. You know, but I think our understanding of how antidepressants, you know, work is evolving too. It may be the case we only would, you know, need to take, you know, Prozac once a week or once a month, <laughs> uh, you, you know, because the neuroplastic and, you know, neurogenesis effects are you know, prolonged after single exposure. But that would take away the annuity for the pharmaceutical company. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, there aren't many. Yeah, now, you'd make more. Well, you, you could develop a new, uh, you know, formulation uh, of, you know, Prozac, which is, you know, seven times more expensive if you only take it once a week. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, we have a little bit of time left. Let's talk about integration. You've you've had your psychedelic experience how how do you integrate it to make it part of your life? Integration, yeah, that's a big question. Um, well, y you know, theoretically, um, or in an ideal you know world, you would continue what you were doing before you tripped uh, with more vigor, with more conviction. If, for example, you're an activist and you want to spread world peace, and you're not quite as you know, firmly emplaced uh, with your beliefs and, you know, with your actions, and you want to, uh, you know, work on that during your trip, 
you know, hopefully you will have experienced those ideas, uh, those beliefs, those aspirations in a more convincing manner. You know, they're even more important now than they were before. They're even, uh, you know, truer. They're even more meaningful. And you would continue your uh, your life, um, uh, you know, being inspired. Um, you would have, you know, had inspiration, and uh, you would you know, continue, uh, 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 you know, playing it out forward. Uh, I, you know, if you know, there's any like you know, take home, I suppose. Um, if you are you know, new to the field, you know, so to speak, um, you know, one of the pieces of advice that I like to give is occupy yourself once you've come down and you're back to your daily life, you know, to occupy yourself with things that remind you of the best parts of your trip. You know, so if uh, it involves be- being in the natural, uh, you know, in the natural world, spend more time in nature. If it involves, you know, singing, then sing more. Uh, if it involves study, study more. Uh, if it involved, you know, communicating therapeutically, romantically, you know, do more of that. Um, you're being shown something which is meaningful, uh, you know, to you in that state. And if you've done your homework, uh, you want to become a better person as a result of your tripping. And you can, you know, work on the strengthening of those you know, beliefs uh, in your uh, in in your daily in your in your daily life afterwards. You know, like if you meditated, you know, better you know than ever before uh, on psilocybin, then you know, you know, double your efforts at your meditation practice. You know, those kinds of things. Well, thank you. I think we've come to the end. Unless there are any things that you want to mention that you think we might have forgotten, I, I think you need to be open-minded about your experiences. You know, there's a big emphasis on the mystical experience nowadays: ego dissolution, the white light. You know, no more. You, you know, no more time, space, or self. Um, and um, you know, if you've got that as a goal, it can detract from experiences of real value, which are not mystical, unitive, white light experiences. Um, and also, if you've got that as a goal, you may end up disappointed that you didn't attain it. You know, so I think we need to approach our experiences as, you know, come what may. Um, you know, if we want you know, something to take place, fine, but we, you know, can't uh, be steered, you know, by our preconceptions. It was like what you were you know, talking about earlier, um, I'm about, you know, Beethoven, like enough Beethoven already. I want to have my own trip. Uh, so uh, I think uh, you want to have your own trip. You know, that was our you know DMT study protocol. Have your own trip and come back and report, you know, what happened. I didn't say, you know, this is going to be, or this is that, or you're going to enter the chakras or things. It was like, you know, keep your, you know, keep your eyes open, take careful notes and uh, you know, tell us, what it was like, you know, so there was no disappointment or, you know, generally on, uh, you know, people that just had their own trips and reported. And I was as interested in this kind as, you know, that kind, um, you know, so don't get, you know, zealous, you know, don't become part of a mystical experience cult. And if you, you know, don't attain to that state, you're, you know, somehow a you know, failure. Um, you know, you want to, I mean, everybody's different. Everybody's experiences are different. Uh, okay, folks, that's the last word from Dr. Rick Strassman. Have your own trip and come back and report it to mm-hmm, us. Right. You want to go out, 
go go to go to Amazon. Check out his book, The Psychedelic Handbook. You're going to want, want to read it for sure. Thank you, Rick, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Richard. It was a lot of fun. I hope so. I know you do a lot of interviews. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Until you join me again next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.